Well, good afternoon. This is a difficult hour to preach. <laughs> well, it's not so much because of what I might say, but because of your capacity to assimilate after lunch. <laughs> but uh, we, we will uh, try and keep you awake, Lord willing. All right. I see some more people coming in. It's wonderful that so many of you came out this afternoon. That's great. No better place to be at Loma Linda University than here to study the Word of God. How about it? Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, we thank you for the awesome privilege of being here this afternoon once again to open your Word. And Father, we ask that as we open up the pages of your holy book, that your spirit will be with us. Help us to keep alert. Help us to have clear minds that we might be able to think the thoughts of God. We ask, Lord, that you will bless those who are on the way. Bring them here safely. And we ask that as we study about the great events soon to break forth in this world, that you will teach us how we can be better prepared for these things which are going to overtake the world as an overwhelming surprise. We thank you, Father, for the privilege of approaching your throne in prayer. And we thank you especially because we know that you hear us, and that you will answer this prayer, for we ask it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Ellen G. White, as far as I've been able to determine, in the 100,000 plus pages that she wrote, has only three primary references to Daniel 11. In actual fact, the first statement which I'm going to read as we begin our study this afternoon does not even mention Daniel 11 by name. But we know that she's alluding to Daniel 11. The second quotation, she actually mentions something about the prophecy of Daniel 11. But it's just a general statement. In the third statement, Ellen White actually quotes some verses from Daniel 11. There's only one quotation in all of the writings of Ellen White where she actually quotes verses from Daniel 11. Now what I'd like to do is read these three statements. Uh, the first of them, as I mentioned, does not directly mention Daniel 11, although we know that she is uh, talking about Daniel 11 because of the content of the quotation. Can everybody hear me okay? There's kind of a, kind of a little reverb. Maybe I should use the handheld. Pardon me? Keep, keep talking. I know it's difficult to calibrate a wireless microphone, particularly when I'm the speaker. We're deadly enemies, wireless mics and I. The first quotation is in Testimonies to Ministers, page 112. 
This is the very general statement where she doesn't mention Daniel 11 directly. She says this, The light that Daniel received from God was given especially for these last days. The visions he saw by the banks of the Ulai, which vision of Daniel 8 was given by the river Ulai? Daniel 8. Daniel 8. So she says, the visions he saw by the banks of the Ulai, that's Daniel 8, and the Heidekel. Which vision was given by the Heidekel? Daniel 10 through 12. And the Heidekel, see she's indirectly referring to Daniel 11 here. The great rivers of Shinar are now in the process of fulfillment. Which prophecies are in the process of fulfillment? Daniel 8 and Daniel 10, 11, and 12. She says, are now in the process of fulfillment. And then she says, and all the events foretold will soon come to pass. As I mentioned, she doesn't mention Daniel 11 directly here, but she speaks about the vision next to the Heidekel. And we know that the vision next to the Heidekel was the vision that includes primarily Daniel 11. Now, she doesn't say in this statement where we are in the process of fulfillment. Are we at the beginning of Daniel 11? Are we in the middle of Daniel 11? Or are we towards the end of Daniel 11? She doesn't say. She simply says that all of the events foretold in this chapter will soon come to pass. But we don't know where we are in the process of the chapter. So now we need her second statement, which a little, is a little more specific. It's found in volume 9 of the Testimonies, page 14. 9 Testimonies, page 14. And this is going to add something to the first statement. She says, the world is stirred with the spirit of war. The prophecy of the 11th chapter of Daniel has nearly reached its complete fulfillment. Where are we in the process? First statement, where it's in the process. So, uh, the prophecy in Daniel 11 is a process of fulfillment. But where are we in the process in Daniel 11? She doesn't say in the first statement. But in the second statement she says, the prophecy of the 11th chapter of Daniel has nearly reached its complete fulfillment. Which means that we must be where in Daniel 11? At the very end of Daniel 11. And then she completes the statement by saying, Soon the scenes of trouble spoken of in the prophecies will take place. Now the third statement is the only statement in her writings that I've been able to find, at least in all of uh, what I was able to find on the CD-ROM. It's the only statement where Ellen White actually quotes verses from Daniel 11. She quotes verses 30. To 36. And I want you to notice what she says about verses 30 to 36. This is Manuscript Releases, volume 13, page 394. 
Manuscript Releases, Volume 13, page 394. I tried to find it in one of the published books, but uh, I haven't been able to find it in any of the published books. Uh, so it is it. Manuscript Releases is, uh, you know, there's several volumes that were published of previously unreleased Ellen White material. So they are published, but, you know, not like the regular red books. Now notice this statement. We have no time to lose. Troublous times are before us. The world is stirred with the spirit of war. Soon the scenes of trouble spoken of in the prophecies will take place. The prophecy in the 11th of Daniel has nearly reached its complete fulfillment. Now we saw that's, that's in the previous statement. But now notice what she adds. Much of the history that has taken place in fulfillment of this prophecy will be repeated. I'll wait just a moment so we can digest that. Is she saying that Daniel 11 has a dual fulfillment? No. She's saying that much of the history that fulfilled Daniel 11 will be repeated. And in a moment I'm going to explain what she means. Daniel 11 does not have a dual fulfillment. Daniel 11, true to historicist mold, begins with Persia and it develops, we're going to notice this, it develops without interruption chronologically, ending with the close of probation and ultimately the resurrection, the special resurrection. So in other words, it is like Daniel 2, Daniel 7. It is a sequence of events in chronological order without parentheses or interruptions. So it's impossible that, that part of Daniel 11 was fulfilled in the past and then that part of Daniel 11 is going to be fulfilled in the future as well. It doesn't fit the mold of the prophecies of Daniel. But you're saying, Pastor Bohr, Ellen White clearly says here that much of the history that has taken place in fulfillment of this prophecy will be repeated. Notice she's not saying that, that Daniel 11 is going to be repeated. She says much of the history that took place in fulfillment of Daniel 11 will be repeated. Are you seeing the distinction? There's a very important distinction here. Now the question is, which history of Daniel 11? Which portion of Daniel 11 is going to, uh, the history is going to be repeated again? She continues saying, in the 30th verse, so what part is, uh, what, what historical events are going to be repeated again? Uh, the ones that start where? In the 30th verse. In the 30th verse, a power is spoken of that shall be grieved and return and have indignation against the Holy Covenant. So shall he do, he shall even return and have intelligence with them that forsake the Holy Covenant. And then, I'm not going to quote the verses, then she quotes verses 31 to 36. And then she ends the statement by saying this. Scenes similar to those described in these verses will take place. Are, are those verses going to be fulfilled exactly the same in the future? No. What does similar mean? It does not mean identical. 
It means that what happened in the past is going to happen when? In the future, in similar fashion. In other words, the historical events which fulfilled verses 30 to 36, those historical events are going to transpire again in a similar fashion. And what I want to share with you is, and we're going to go in a few moments to this, verses 31 to 39 of Daniel 11 are describing the history that Ellen White says took place in the past. The similar scenes which will take place in the future are those that transpire from verses 40 to 45. Are you with me? In other words, what took place in verses 31 to 39 in, in the historical flow, that which fulfilled verses 31 to 39 in history, those scenes are going to be fulfilled again in a similar fashion in the future. And in Daniel 11, the place where that fulfillment is, is, is described is in verses 40 to 45. Are you understanding what I'm saying? Now, I'm, I'm going to prove that to you, by the way. Interestingly enough, Ellen White never quotes any verse or any portion of any verse from verses 40 to 45. Furthermore, she not only doesn't quote any verse or any portion of a verse, she never even alludes to the language of these verses. And so some people have assumed that because Ellen White doesn't quote the verses, and Ellen White doesn't even allude to the language of the verses, that Ellen White had nothing to say about these verses. Big mistake. Ellen White had a lot to say about these verses. And before we end today, I'm going to explain to you the reason why she did not quote them and why she did not allude to the language in these verses. There's a particular historical reason in the history of the Adventist church why Ellen White did not quote these verses or even refer to the language which we find in these verses. Now what I want to do for a few moments, and this will just be review because uh, I believe that probably most of you are Adventists and you've studied the prophecies of Daniel, is review the sequence of kingdoms that we find in Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel 7, and then we'll go to Daniel 8. And this is going to be very quick, I'm not even going to read it in the Bible. In Daniel chapter 2, you have gold. What does gold represent in the image? Babylon. Then you have the silver. What does the silver represent? Medo-Persia. Then you have the bronze. What does the bronze represent? Greece. Then you have the legs of iron. What do they represent? Rome. Which Rome? Pagan Rome or the Roman Empire. Imperial Rome, I like to call it. Imperial Rome. The Roman Empire. And then you have ten toes. You have the feet with ten toes. Do they have iron? Yes. Does Rome continue in the feet? Yes, it does. But Rome continues in a divided state because you have ten toes. But now listen up. There is an element added 
to the feet which was not in the legs. And that added element is clay. And for those of you who have seen the presentation on Daniel 2, has, have any of you seen the presentation on Daniel 2 that I gave in 3ABN? Any, any of you? Oh, maybe one or two. Good. So what does the clay represent? <laughs> just kidding, just kidding. You don't, have to, you don't have to answer that. I don't want you to incriminate yourself. What's your name? Gizmo. Gizmo. I knew that. Yes, I met you today. That's right. The pilot. There you go. Now, the clay in the feet represents the church. The iron in the feet represents the state, the political power of Rome. In other words, the mixture of iron and clay represents the union of church and state. Ellen White makes that clear. And if I had the time, I would show you from the Bible that the clay represents churchcraft, as Ellen White calls it. So in the feet, Rome continues in a divided state, but it's a different Rome because it is an amalgamated Rome of a union of church and state. That's Daniel 2. Now we'll go to Daniel 7. You have a lion. What does a lion represent? Babylon. You have a bear. What does a bear represent? Medo-Persia. You have a leopard beast. What does a leopard beast represent? Greece. You have a terrible, they call it a nondescript beast. It's really a dragon beast. What does the dragon beast represent? Rome. Which Rome? Imperial Rome, yes, the Roman Empire. And then what grows out of the head of that beast? Ten horns. By the way, did you know that that dragon beast rules for a while without the horns on his head? Daniel 7 makes that clear. Because it says that out of the head of this beast came ten horns. Which means that the beast has to exist before the horns come out. And then it says that after the ten come out, among the ten comes a little one. Are you following me? You have the same as the feet. You have ten, the iron, which is the dragon beast, and the clay, which is the little horn, in Daniel 7. So you have, and Daniel 7 adds that there are several dimensions to Rome. Is that true? First, first stage of Rome is the Roman Empire. Second stage of Rome is the ten horns. Third stage of Rome is Rome under the little horn. It's all the same dragon beast. And then when you get to Revelation, you see that the little horn has a fourth stage. That Rome has a fourth stage. Because the beast or the little horn receives a deadly wound. And after a period of inactivity, the deadly wound is healed. So Rome has a fourth stage of existence in Bible prophecy. And she will do in the future what she did in the past. Are you starting to catch an interesting picture here? Now, so in Daniel 7, you have the same sequence. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, the empire of Rome. Then you have the ten horns, the ten kingdoms of Rome, and then you have what? 
papal Rome, the papacy. Now let's go to Daniel 8. Daniel 8 does not begin with Babylon. Do you know why Daniel 8 doesn't begin with Babylon? How come? Babylon what? That's what you, people usually say. That, you know, that is an explanation, but it is not the best explanation. You see, Daniel 8 was given when Babylon still had 12 years before its fall. Were you aware of that? Daniel 8 was given in the year 550 B.C., which means that Babylon wasn't going to fall for 12 whole years. So you, say, you can't say it was, well, because Babylon was history. It wasn't history. It still had 12 years to rule. So you say, why then does Daniel 8 begin not with Babylon, but it begins with Persia, the second kingdom of Daniel 2 and Daniel 7? The reason is very simple. You see, Daniel 8 is going to emphasize the prophecy of the 2300 days. And the 2300 days begin with which kingdom? Persia. You see, if he'd begun, if he'd begun with Babylon, it would have given the impression that the 2300 day prophecy begins with Babylon. But by starting with Persia, he's saying that the 2300 days begin during the period of the rulership of Persia. Are you following me? Because the question is, until when the vision? Which vision? The vision of, of the ram, the vision of the he-goat, the vision of the notable horn, the, visible, uh, the, the vision of the four horns that come out, the vision of the little horn that progresses horizontally, the vision of the little horn that progresses vertically. That's the vision. Until when the vision? 2,300 days. You see, the vision, if it had included Babylon, it would give the impression that the 2,300 days were to begin during the kingdom of Babylon. Are you understanding my point? And so Daniel chapter 8 begins with the second kingdom, with Persia. And by the way, the symbol that is used is a symbol of a ram. Right? And the ram has two what? Two horns. And one of the horns is higher than the other. And the highest one comes out last. Do you know that that is precisely historically true? Medo-Persia began as a dual kingdom, the Medes and the Persians. But after Cyrus the Great, all of the rulers were Persians. So the notable, and be, by the way, before Cyrus, Media was the kingdom of choice. The Persia, Persia was secondary. But it's interesting, it says that of the kingdom, kingdom of the Medes and the Persians, the most powerful kingdom would be taller and it would come out what? Last. That's exactly what happened historically. So you have a ram with two horns. You don't have to guess about that because it says in Daniel 8 that the ram represent the king, represents the kings of Media and Persia. It says so there in Daniel 8. And then after this you have a he-goat. And the he-goat has a notable horn between his eyes. And the large horn is broken. And in place of that horn, four horns come out. Right? 
Now, what does this uh, he-goat represent? Greece. What does the notable horn represent? Alexander the Great. What do the horns, four horns represent? They represent the four kingdoms into which Alexander's empire was divided upon his death. And then after this, you have a little horn. And I want you to notice that the little horn, first of all, grows horizontally. He conquers geographically. South, east, and the glorious land. This is the period of imperial Rome, his geographical conquests. But then we're told that this little horn is no longer happy overcoming and conquering horizontally, suddenly he turns vertical. And he starts attacking the prince of the host. And he sets up the abomination of desolation. And he takes away the daily. What stage of Rome is that? Papal Rome. So do you see here that we've moved from Persia to Greece to the first king of Greece, to the four divisions of Greece, to the geographical extension of pagan Rome, to the work of papal Rome. Is this exactly what we find in Daniel chapter 7? Absolutely, the same sequence. Same sequence of powers. Now go with me to Daniel 11. Daniel 11. You tell me if this is following the same sequence. Let's begin at verse 1. Also in the first year of Darius the Mede, even I stood to confirm and to strengthen him. And now I will show thee the truth. Behold, there shall stand up yet three kings in Persia. Where does Daniel 11 begin? With which kingdom? Persia. Which kingdom did Daniel 8 begin with? Persia. Hmm. Same starting point? Absolutely. It says, And the fourth shall be far richer than they all. And by his strength, through his riches, he shall stir up all against the realm of Greece. What was the next kingdom in Daniel 8? Greece. What is the second kingdom in Daniel 11? Greece. Now, notice verse 4. Actually, verse 3. And a mighty king shall stand up and shall rule with great dominion and do according to his will. Who would that great king be? The notable horn, right? And when he shall stand up, his kingdom shall be broken and shall be divided toward the four winds of heaven. What happened when the notable four horn was broken? Four horns. Is this following the same order? Now we know why Ellen White says that the visions by the Uli and the Heidekel are in the process of fulfillment. She understood that these prophecies are parallel. But we don't have to have Ellen White for that. But it shows that she was on the right track. She's always on the right track. Those who criticize her are on the wrong track. You know, because they nitpick. See, all, all people do is nitpick with Ellen White. They did it in her day. For example, 
And Ellen White said that it was the bell of the palace that marked the beginning of the St. Bartholomew Massacre. And some historians say it wasn't the bell of the palace, it was the bell of the cathedral. And your point being, who cares what bell? The point is that a bell rang to mark the beginning of the St. Bartholomew Massacre to try and extirpate Protestantism from France. So don't get all caught up in the bell. (laughs) Ellen White also once spoke about a sanitarium. She says the sanitarium has 40 rooms. Somebody wrote to her, I I don't believe in your inspiration anymore because I know for a fact that the sanitarium has 38. (laughs) And... They are incidental details. Even the gospel writers, one says that there was one demon-possessed man and the other one says that there were two. Oh, my faith is shattered. And I say that facetiously. It's ridiculous. You look at these websites, you know, that, that attack Ellen White. Every single one of the things that they say has an answer, but they take things out of context and sometimes error can be made very persuasive when you don't study for yourself. Now, which which would you expect to be the next kingdom in Daniel 11? If we're following the same sequence of Daniel 8. What do you think? Which Rome? Pagan Rome. Let's go to verse 22. I can't study the whole chapter with you. I just have to give you the main outline so you see it's the the same sequence. Notice verse 22. And with the arms of a flood shall they be overthrown from before him. This speaking about, about the conquest of Jerusalem in the year 70 by Rome. And with the arms of a flood. Do you remember that in Daniel chapter 9 it says that the destruction of Jerusalem would come like a flood? And it says, and shall be overthrown from before him, and shall be broken, and now notice, yea, also the prince of the covenant. What was going to happen with the prince of the covenant? He was going to be what? Broken. Let me ask you, who broke the prince of the covenant? Who is the prince of the covenant? Jesus. Who broke him? Rome. Which Rome? Imperial Rome. Now, Let's go to verse 31. What would you expect the next states to be in Daniel 11? Now where did you get that idea from? Have we followed the sequence? Yes or no? Did we begin with Persia? Yes. Did we continue with Greece? Yes. Did we have a notable king in both? Yes. Did we have four divisions in both? Yes. Did we have a power that broke the prince of the covenant in both? Yes. By the way, that dragon beast of Daniel 7 is the same dragon beast of Revelation 12 that stands next to the woman to devour her child as soon as he's born. He has ten horns, see? So that proves that the dragon beast with ten horns is Rome. Imperial Rome. But then it says that the woman flees to the wilderness for time, times, and the dividing of time. Hello, that's the next stage of Rome. So the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation are parallel. Now, notice verse 31. 
It took me, it took me 17 90-minute tapes to cover verses 31 to 45. So I'm just going to give you the highlights. It says here, speaking about the king of the north, the king of the north is the same as the little horn, it's the same as the beast, it's the same as the man of sin. In other words, it's this antichrist power. It says, and arms shall stand on his part. Do you know what that means? It means that, that the civil power would support the king of the north, the religious power. Arms means political power, political strength. And they shall do. Do what? Pollute the sanctuary of strength. Is that what the little horn did in Daniel 8? Yes. And shall take away the daily. Is that what the little horn did in Daniel 8? Yes. And they shall place the abomination that maketh desolate. Is that what the little horn did in Daniel 8? Yes. Is this the little horn stage? The description is identical to Daniel 7 and Daniel 8. Verse 32. And such as do wickedly against the covenant shall he corrupt by flatteries. This is a flattering system. It's a deceptive system. But the people that do know their God shall be strong and do. Is there going to be a people faithful that will not, not be deceived? Absolutely. Verse 33, And they that understand among the people shall instruct many. And now notice what's going to happen with those who are faithful and instruct many. Did the little horn persecute the saints in Daniel chapter 7? Did the, did the little horn persecute the saints of the Most High in Daniel 8? Yes. And are we told that actually the little horn prospered in Daniel 7 and 8? Is that what it says? Absolutely. Now notice here, it says, And they that understand among the people shall instruct many, yet they shall fall by, notice four methods of persecution, by the sword, by flame, by captivity, and by spoil. You know, as you examine history, these are the very four methods that the Roman Catholic papacy used to try and annihilate God's people. You see, this is amplifying Daniel 7. Daniel 7 simply says that he, says that he would persecute the saints of the Most High. Here it tells you how he was going to persecute the saints of the Most High. Let me ask you, did they use the sword to kill God's people? Yes. How about burning people at the stake? Yes. How about putting people in prison, like John Huss, for example? How about spoil? Do you know what spoil means? It means that their properties were confiscated. Do you know that there was a crusade? And I've had the privilege of being there in, in Torre Pellice in northern Italy with uh, Dr. Domsti. One of my favorite places in the whole trip. Beautiful up there. There's a place where there's some... some Waldenses hiding in a cave and they smoked them out. Others they took to a high cliff and they threw them over the cliff. And the Pope said to whoever went on that crusade against them, they could keep their property. So this is historically precise. It describes the four methods which were used during the Dark Ages to persecute God's people. And now notice it says how long this is going to last. It says by captivity and by spoil, many days. How many days? 
1,260 days. Did Daniel 7 say that the little horn was going to persecute the saints of the Most High for time, times, and the dividing of time? Yes. Here it says that, this, that God's people would be persecuted for many days. Many days are interpreted in Revelation as 1,260 days, which is the same as time, times, and the dividing of time. Are we following the same sequence here of Daniel 7 and 8? Of course. Verse 34, Now when they shall fall, that is, those who instruct the people, the faithful, they shall be helped with a little help. Some people interpret this as the Protestant Reformation. But many shall cleave to them with flatteries. And some of them of understanding shall fall to try them and to purge and to make them white even to the time of the end. By the way, when does the time of the end come? When the many days are finished, 1798. Because it is yet for a time appointed. And now comes the climax of this power. It says, and the king, notice he's called the king here. He's the king of the north. The same as the little horn, same as the beast, same as the man of sin. It says, and the king shall do according to his will. And he shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god. Does this make you think of 2 Thessalonians 2? The man of sin? Hmm. So it says, The king shall do according to his will. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak marvelous things against the god of gods. Did the little horn speak great words against the most high? So is this parallel? See, this, this is parallel in Daniel 7 and Daniel 8. And shall prosper. Did the little horn tr- prosper? Yeah, read Daniel 7 and 8. And shall prosper till the indignation be accomplished. For that that is determined shall be done. Neither shall he regard the God of his fathers. The God of his fathers. Who are the fathers of the Christian church? The apostles. Your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're the founders of the nation. In other words, this power was not going to regard the God of his fathers, nor the desire of women. Probably a reference to celibacy. Nor regard any God, for he shall magnify himself above all. But in his estate shall he be honored. Shall he honor the God of forces? The God of forces is the power of the state. And a God whom his fathers knew not shall he honor with gold and silver with precious stones and pleasant things like the harlot is clothed in Revelation 17. Thus shall he do in the most strongholds with a strange God whom he shall acknowledge and increase with glory and he shall cause them to rule over many and shall divide the land for gain. Probably this is a reference to the selling and buying of lands by the papacy. The process, the, the, the pro, uh, process which was known as simony. For those of you who have studied church history. So what period are these verses describing? They're describing the period of dominion of what power? Papal Rome. Which stage of Papal Rome? Have these verses been fulfilled already? Yes, they've been fulfilled, right? The many days are the 1260 years. When did their fulfillment end? 1798. Now let me ask you this. 
are these scenes going to be repeated again? Are we going to see similar things in the future? Why? It's simple. It says in Revelation chapter 13 that this beast that rules 42 months that did all of these things received a deadly wound. And for the last 200 years plus this power has been in check. Right? Let me ask you, is the deadly wound going to be healed? Yes. Is this power going to behave like it behaved in the past? Yes. Now do you understand Ellen White's statement? It's because the papacy has two stages that scenes similar to the past are going to be repeated. Not the prophecy, but the scenes will be similar. The fulfillment of the prophecy. Are you following me or not? Now, there's a fundamental misconception among even conservative Adventists, if I can use the expression conservative, those who still believe the fullness of our Adventist message. Maybe I should express it that way. Everything. All of our fundamental beliefs. Even, even many conservative Adventists have had a wrong concept of what the deadly wound is. Maybe I can just digress for a moment. You're not in a hurry, are you? Are you in a hurry? Do you have Saturday night activities coming up? <laughs> Remember my sermon this morning. I got some tremendous things to share with you. Go with me to Revelation 13. I'll just digress for a moment here. Revelation 13. Verse 10. 13, verse 10. He that leadeth into captivity, this is speaking about the beast, which is the same as the little horn, the king of the north, the man of sin. He that leadeth into captivity shall go into captivity. He that killeth with the sword must be killed with the sword. What did the papacy kill with? They killed with the sword. And it says the papacy would be killed with what? The sword. Now what does the sword represent? Yeah, that's the answer people always give. So you're telling me that the papacy killed with the word of God. You're not with me. Huh? The papacy killed with the word of God, huh? Actually, folks, the papacy did not kill with the word of God, nor was the papacy killed with the word of God. You see, in Scripture, symbols don't always mean the same thing. You have to take into account the context. It's true that the sword in the Bible represents the word of God but not in this context. Go with me to Romans, Romans 13. Romans chapter 13. And verse 1. 
Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. What are the higher powers here? The government. The civil power. For there is no power but of God, the powers that are ordained of God, that be, are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power, that is the civil power, resisteth the ordinance of God, and they they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain. Who bears the sword? The civil power. The sword then represents the civil power. Let me ask you, who was it that gave the deadly wound to the papacy? The civil power of France. Correct? Did the papacy use the civil power to slay God's people? Did it use the power of the state to kill God's people? Yes. So God is saying, you use the sword of the civil power to kill my people, now that sword is going to give you a deadly wound. By the way, the deadly wound was not healed in 1929. Now we can say that there was a process that started in 1929. The deadly wound was not healed in 1929. You say, how do we know that? For two reasons. Reason number one, Revelation 13 says it's the United States who will be instrumental in healing the deadly wound. And in 1929 it was Italy. I lost you there, didn't I? Does Revelation 13 say it's going to be the United States that is going to give the sword, the state, back to the, to the papacy? Yes. Can't be in 1929. Italy was the one who signed the concordance. Even more seriously, people take that article in the San Francisco Chronicle. You've read that one, right? Where it says that, that by signing this concordance, the wound that had been festering for many decades had finally been healed. Do you know that that article is not even talking about what happened in 1798? It's talking about what happened in 1870. The wound that that article is talking about is not the wound that was given in 1798 to the papacy. It's talking about the wound that was given to the papacy in 1870 when Victor Emmanuel III took away the papal states because Italy was composed of many separate independent states that that belonged to the papacy. And they were all confiscated And so the popes decided that they would become prisoners of the Vatican for the next 59 years. They declared themselves under house arrest, if you please. And when the concordat was signed, basically, uh, the article in the San Francisco Chronicle was saying that the wound that had been given in 1870 was healed by the signing of the concordat. Let me ask you, when is it that the wound is going to be fully healed? when the United States returns the sword to the papacy. And that has not happened yet. Because if it had happened, we wouldn't be here this afternoon. (laughs) We would be some other place, studying in secret the Word of God. What a blessing to be in a place where we can speak openly. Let's take advantage of, of this time of peace 
and prosperity because time is coming, folks, when it's going to be very difficult to share God's truth. Let's do it while we can. Well, God is giving us freedom to do this. Now, that was my digression. Let's go back to Daniel 11. So far, so good? All right. Now, what would you expect the next stage in Daniel 11 to be? We studied about the papacy during the 1260 years. What must the next stage be? Well, is the papacy going to have another period of dominion? Sure. So would you expect that to be the next segment of Daniel 11? Of course. Now what I want to do for the next few minutes is to discuss verses 40 to 45, and we're not going to get into everything. I just want to give you some pointers. I want to discuss verses 40 to 45 from a slightly different methodology or a slightly different perspective. Because Ellen White doesn't have anything to say about verses 40 to 45, apparently, we can't really get any help from that place directly. So what we're going to do is instead of starting at verse 40, we're going to start at Daniel 12, verse 2. And we're going to work backwards. And you're going to see in a few moments the reason why we're going to do that. Now, I'm not going to read the, te- the, I'm not going to read the quotations from the Great Controversy, but I'm going to give you the pages. Great Controversy, page 637. What page did I say? Good, you're still awake. 637. On that page, Ellen White quotes Daniel 12 and verse 2. Many who sleep in the dust of the earth shall rise, some to everlasting life and some to everlasting shame and contempt. And she says this is speaking about the special resurrection of those who died in the message of the third angel, of the faith of the third angel, and those who pierced Jesus. So she quotes Daniel 12, verse 2. Where would you expect to find her quotation on Daniel 12, verse 1? Maybe before page 637? Now before I I go to before page 637, I want you to notice that there's a sequence of events in Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. It says, At that time Michael shall stand up, that great prince that stands watch over the children of your people. Point number one. Michael stands up. Point number two. There shall be a time of what? Of trouble such as never was. Number three. At that time, at the end of the time of trouble, your people will be delivered. And then many who sleep in the dust of the earth shall arise. Do you see the chronological sequence? Michael stands up. Time of trouble. God's people delivered. And the special resurrection. Daniel 12 verse 2. Now we've already noticed that Ellen White quotes Daniel 12 and verse 2 on page 637 of Great Controversy. Go two pages earlier and tell me what the title of that chapter is. 
God's people delivered. Which is the last phrase of Daniel 12, verse 1. God's people delivered. Are you with me? 637, Daniel 12, verse 2. 635, the last phrase of Daniel 12, verse 1. God's people delivered is the title of the chapter. Where would you expect to find Ellen White's comments about Michael standing up in the time of trouble? It, might, it must be before page 635. I'll bet you can't guess what the title of the chapter is before that. Huh? The time of trouble. Now, isn't that interesting? Do you know what verse she begins that chapter with? By the way, if you want the page, it's on page 671. She begins that chapter by quoting Daniel 12 and verse 1. 613. Yes. 600, no. Yeah, 613. 637, 635 God's people delivered, 613 the standing up of Michael and the time of trouble. She actually quotes the verse at the beginning of that chapter. Where would you expect to find Ellen White com White's comments about the verses before Daniel 12, verse 1? It must be in the previous chapters. You say, how do we know that? Well, let's notice how Daniel chapter 12, verse 1 begins. Daniel 12 and verse 1, how it begins. It says, at that time, Michael shall stand up. At which time? what is mentioned in the last part of chapter 11. Are you with me or not? It it's a time reference. At that time, Michael shall stand up. So if Ellen White quotes that verse, at that time, Michael shall stand up, we must find before that page her comments on what you have in the previous verses. Are you following me? Now, I'm only going to give you one further example. So that you see, see, all you have to do now is work your way backwards. I want you to go with me to Daniel 11, and I'm going to show you something very interesting. Verse 44. Daniel 11 and verse 44. Before this, the king of the north has conquered everything in sight. By the way, if you look at the geography of the Middle East. You're going to discover that the king of the north begins his conquests in Babylon because he's the king of the north. Babylon was the king of the north in scripture times because you had to go up the fertile crescent and then east to Babylon. And if you notice his conquests, you'll see that he moves from Babylon, he comes west he enters the countries, which is a reference to the countries north of Israel, Lebanon being one of them, Syria being the other. And then he moves south through the Holy Land. And he conquers Edom, Moab, and Ammon, which are east of Jerusalem. He continues moving south. He gets down to Egypt, Libya, 
Ethiopia. In other words, he's conquered the world of that day from Babylon to the river of Egypt. He's overwhelmed the world, so to speak. But then when he's way down there, tidings from the north and the east trouble him. In fact, notice what it says in verse 44. But tidings out of the east and out of the north shall trouble him. Now, you know, it's very interesting. If you look at the geography, and I don't have a map here. I wish I had a map of the Holy Land. But if you, if you look at a map, you're going to find that Ethiopia and Egypt are south and west of Jerusalem. So where is Jerusalem with reference to where the king of the north is at that point? Jerusalem is north and east. There are some tidings that are coming out of Jerusalem. Which is north and east of where the king of the north is at that point. The counterfeit king of the north. And what does he do when he hears these tidings coming out from Jerusalem? It says in the last half of the verse, Therefore he shall go forth with great fury to destroy and utterly to make away many. What do these tidings instill in the heart of the king of the north? Rage. Against whom? Against those who are proclaiming the what? The tidings. There's a very close connection. It says, tidings from the north and the east trouble him, and then he goes out to kill. So is there a relationship between the tidings and him going out to kill and being enraged? Yes. Now, here's the interesting point. I'll bet you can't guess what the title of the chapter is before the chapter on the time of trouble. <laughs> no. The title of that chapter is The Final Warning. And let me share something very interesting with you. Go with me to Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7. And verse 2. Revelation 7 and verse 2. It says, I saw another angel ascending from where? Hmm. Should that uh, awaken interest? I saw another angel ascending from the east, having what? The seal of the living God. What is the seal of the living God? Sabbath. So what message is this? It comes from the east. Sabbath message. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea, nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. So what is the message that comes from the east? It's the message of the what? Of the sealing, the message of the Sabbath. But you say, wait a minute, it says tidings from the north as well. Let me ask you, where is north? We usually think of north and south in linear fashion, don't we? Let's see, uh, north is that way, right? North is that way? Okay. North is that way. 
Okay. We usually think of north, south, east, and west. But biblically, that's not true because north is up and south is down. And east is to the right hand and west is to the left hand. God's points of the compass are the north and the east. The devil's points of the compass are in the west and in the south. And the reason why is because of the position of the sun. God is a God of light. And light originates in the east and it reaches its highest intensity when it's directly overhead in the north. For those of you who don't believe that the north is up, when Lucifer wanted to take the throne of God, he says, I will ascend to heaven to the sides of the north. So what is north? The throne of God is north. By the way, the positive points of the quadrant in math are to the right side and above. The negative sides of the quadrant are to the left and the bottom. And by the way, in Amos 8, verses 11 and 12, it says that many are going to run from sea to sea and from north to east seeking the word of God. Why don't they seek the word of God in the west and in the south? Because there ain't no light there. Excuse the bad English. They seek the word of God because the, the word of God is light according to scripture. And so there's a message coming from the north and from the east. The message from the east is the sealing message. Let me ask you, who is giving the mark of the beast in contrast to those who are preaching the seal of God? What's the system called in Revelation? Babylon. Go with me to Revelation 18. Revelation chapter 18, verse 1. And after these things I saw another angel come down from heaven having great power. And the earth was lightened with his glory. Any relationship with the rising sun in Revelation 7? Yes? Absolutely. Notice verse 2. And he cried mightily with a strong voice saying, Babylon the greatest fallen. Who gives the mark of the beast? Babylon is fallen, is fallen. Babylon gives the mark of the beast. Is there going to be a group of people who are going to denounce the beast and his mark? Yes. Are they going to preach the sealing message? Absolutely. So it says, And he cried mightily with a strong voice, saying, Babylon the great has fallen, is fallen, and has become the habitation of devils, and the hold of every foul spirit, and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. For all nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication, and the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth have waxed rich through the abundance of her delicacies. And now notice, and I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sins, and that ye receive not of her plagues. That means that Babylon is going to be ransacked. Of course, Babylon is going to be elated by this message, the sealing message that comes from the east and that comes from heaven, from the north. What's Babylon going to do when this message is shared? The message of the sealing from the east and this message inviting God's people to come out of Babylon and receive the seal of God. Babylon is going to be what? Enraged against God's people. Now the interesting thing is, 
the chapter, which is titled The Final Warning, by the way, it's found on page 603, 603. If you read that chapter, I bet you you can't guess what passage Ellen White begins that chapter with. Revelation 18, 1 to 4. Are you seeing what Ellen White is doing? Does she have anything to say about this prophecy? Yes. In fact, folks, I'm not going to do the rest of it because I need to leave you some homework. But if you continue going backwards in great controversy, you'll finally end up on the, in the, at the chapter which is titled The Bible and the French Revolution, which is where the king of the south, which was Egypt in biblical times, but which Egypt, you have to take symbolically what Egypt represents, a defiance of the true God, France, who defied the true God, proclaimed itself an atheistic nation, arose, and it gave the king of the north a deadly wound. That's Daniel 11, verse 40, the first part. And if you work back in the writings of Ellen White in Great Controversy, you'll end up at the Bible and the French Revolution. And by the way, there's a shaking there in Daniel chapter 11. It doesn't say shaking. But it says that many will fall when the king of the north gets his conquest. But many shall escape from his hands. You read, they're in great controversy. Ellen White says that many of those who are among God's people will fall under this threefold system. But many of those who are outside the Adventist church will join the ranks of the remnant. See, she doesn't quote the verses, but, but it screams at you that that's what she's talking about. And then she speaks about the glorious land. You know, the, the, the king of the north entering the glorious land and overcoming the glorious land. The glorious land represents Protestantism as it's found in the United States. Is Protestantism going to be overcome by the Roman Catholic papacy? To a great degree it already has been, but it's going to be totally overcome by the papacy. And then finally it says that the the king of the north hears these, this news and he goes, out. It's, he goes out to destroy many. Let me ask you, where are the ones located that he wants to destroy? Where's the message coming from? From Jerusalem. Look at it geographically. Look at the progress of the king of the north. He goes from Babylon. He goes across the countries north of Israel. He comes down Ammon, Edom, and Moab. Then he continues going south. He overcomes Egypt. Ethiopia and Libya, which in, is in northern Africa. While he's down there in Libya, he hears, hears tidings from the north and from the east, which is Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is a symbol of the church. And it says he goes to destroy many. Where does he go? Where the news is coming from, right? And it says that he puts the tents of his palace between the seas. By the way, the word seas there refers to the Mediterranean. In, po in poetic language, the Mediterranean is spoken of in plural. Several times in the Old Testament, between the seas and the glorious holy mountain. Glorious holy mountain is God's remnant church. Not the glorious land. The glorious land is all of the land of Israel. Much of that is going to fall to the king of the north. And if I had time, I would show you that, that, that when the king of the north comes into the, into the holy land, the realm of the church, and overwhelms most of the church... Many of those that are out there are going to flee 
and find refuge in Jerusalem. They're going to find refuge in the true church. And then the king of the north is going to place the tents of his palace between the Mediterranean, and this is not literal, by the way, and the glorious holy mountain, which is Jerusalem, where God's people are found. And his intention is to deliver a final death blow, which will reduce to silence the news that is coming from Jerusalem. But it says in Daniel 11 that he will come to his end and there will be none to help him. So Ellen White has a lot to say about this prophecy. Now why didn't Ellen White use the terminology? I'll explain the reason why. Ellen White had a big problem in the 1870s and that is that Uriah Smith shifted the Seventh-day Adventist view of the King of the North from the papacy to Turkey. And James White and Uriah Smith got into a fight. Not literally fist fight, but very strong verbal war. And they were dividing the church by their warfare. Ellen White, even though she knew that James was right, could not side with him against Uriah Smith, who was the editor of the Reunion Herald. So when Ellen White said to herself, she says, what I'm going to do is I'm going to explain this prophecy without using the language. And someday, someone smart enough, no, someone with divine enlightenment, is going to discover my concepts about this prophecy, even though I didn't use the language. See, Ellen White knew that this prophecy was not present truth back then. She knew it was not indispensable to understand the view of the King of the North back then. That doesn't mean that it's not important now. Because knowledge has been increased concerning the King of the North. These things are happening, happening before our eyes. And so, what Ellen White did not consider present truth, and she says, let's not discuss it because it will divide the church back then, does not mean that we can't understand it and interpret it today. And in fact, if you continue working backwards, you'll find that Ellen White, every phrase in Daniel 11, she interprets without using the language. It's simply amazing. How did she know this if she wasn't inspired? How did she know how to comment on this stage by stage in, in chronological order if she wasn't inspired? See, these are the types of things that show me that Ellen White was inspired. Not the number of rooms in a sanitarium. You know, Ellen White says that God has given plenty of room to doubt. And we can choose to have faith or we can choose to doubt. But there's plenty of evidence to have faith. And I personally have chosen to have faith. And in our institutions, our teachers should be instilling faith. They should not be instilling doubt. That's one of the problems that we have in, our, in the church today. 
So a lot of teachers are instilling doubt in not only in Ellen White, but in the inspiration of the Bible. They're talking about degrees of inspiration. They're talking about you can't trust certain portions of the Bible because they were the opinions of men. They're using what is known as the historical critical method of interpreting Bible, uh, the Bible. And as a result, the faith of many is undermined. Many of our young people who have brilliant minds could, who, could be, who could be a blessing to the church are being ruined by this. And I'll end with just a short comment about, and I will know this to be true, when I arrived in Fresno, there was an, uh, I had an associate pastor that I inherited. One day we were having a discussion. He says, what do you believe about creation? I said, well, I believe what the Bible says. That God worked six literal 24-hour days and he rested on the seventh 24-hour day. And he looked at me and he says, you actually believe that? I said, Yes. That's what the Bible teaches, right? He says, yes, but modern science has proved that there was death long before sin. You look at the geologic record, you'll see that there were lower organisms dying for millions of years before man appeared on the scene. So he said, we need to believe then that the days of creation were millions of years. He's an Adventist pastor. And I looked at him and I said, what? (laughs) You actually believe that? What do you do with the Genesis story? Where it says, it was the evening and the morning. What do you do with the, the Sabbath commandment? Which says, Work six and rest the seventh because I work six and rest of the seventh. If the days were millions of years, how can I follow God's example? And you know what he said? He said, listen, modern science is much more contemporary the Bible, so I prefer to believe science over the Bible. And this is just a drop in the bucket. Folks, we need organizations such as this one to uphold the truth. We need organizations such as GYC, which is a huge movement of young people, young adults, praise the Lord, raising the standard and upholding the teachings that God has given to this church. We're not Seventh-day Adventist Lutherans or Seventh-day Adventist Pentecostals, or Seventh-day Adventist Presbyterians, or Seventh-day Adventist Evangelicals. We have no embarrassment about saying that we are Seventh-day Adventists. And that we have unique beliefs, different than the Christian world believes. There's nothing wrong with being different. You know, in our old age as a church, we shouldn't be worried about peer pressure. Because it's teenagers who are worried about peer pressure. So we should come back to our roots. We should come back to our beliefs. And we should not only teach the truth, we should live the truth. And then God will give us the power to move the world. And that's what I'm praying for. Did you understand what we studied this afternoon? Yeah?
in general terms at least? Okay, now, we'll have a word of prayer. And then are we going to sing some, a couple of songs or are we just going to go into the second session? Five minutes. Literal, not prophetic. <laughs> okay, let's have a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for the certainty of your holy word. Oh, Father, we thank you that we have not believed cunningly devised fables. Father, I thank you for those who are gathered here for Advent Hope, for its leaders, for GYC, for so many other groups that are springing up everywhere, desirous of upholding the unique message of our church and the unique lifestyle which you have given to us. I ask, Father, that you will help this movement to proliferate and bring a great revival and reformation in your church. Such a powerful revival and reformation that it will move not only the church, but that, that it will move the world so that the work can be finished and Jesus can come. For we're tired of living in this world of sin and sorrow and sickness and suffering and death. And we want to go home. We thank you, Lord, for having been with us this afternoon. And we thank you for hearing and answering our prayer. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.